Welcome back to Carving the Stone Podcast, where our positive news articles come to life. I'm your host, Naisha Stone, and I'm also the founder of Carving the Stone, your weekly source of positive news. Now, if you've been following our podcast journey, um, we've been doing podcasts since December 2022, and now we're coming up on the very last episode of season one. It's been a long journey. I think we're like 21, 22 episodes in, only missed about two. Uh, so we re- released one every Tuesday. Very proud of myself. Um, but we're going to keep this thing going and we're going to end it very well. And we're going to uh, bring it back up in the fall time. So our very last special guest, we have Brittany Grayson, who is the Milwaukee County Circuit Court Judge for Branch 16. So if you were listening to um, last week's episode, we had another judge, but he was retired. But now we have a current judge. And it's very interesting because she's a black woman. So we started with the black woman. And we're ending with a black woman. So I'm very excited about that. Hey, Brittany, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm honored to be the last guest of season one. I'm happy to have you here. I, when I saw you, I was like, oh, yeah, she definitely got to be a guest. And so I'm, I'm really excited that you made time. So Absolutely. I want to know about like just like your background of like why coming in to like why be a judge. And then I think you specifically like focus on like um children juvenile so I'm really interested in um just that we'll get into it but just overall to people who don't know you um you know like why why specifically going to the the route of uh, of being a judge so um I think some people think that most judges sort of plan to get here you know they, they figure out okay this is what I want to do this is my plan to get here and a lot of people do that but that that was not my journey at all so you ever heard that saying, if you want to make God laugh, make plans? <laughs> so, so I spent a lot of my time making plans. And every time I would try to go one way, God would say, nope, we're going this way. So, so for me, so I, I'll try to make my background, you know, not as lengthy, but I, I'm one of the first in my family to go to college. So once I got to college and got through that, I didn't really know what um, my next step would be. So I got the idea of going to law school because I had a really good friend, two things. I had a really good friend in college who was like, oh, I think I want to be a lawyer. And he was talking about going to law school. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. I really never thought about it. And we'll probably talk more later, but that's, I think, where representation comes in, right? Where, you know, I grew up not seeing Black attorneys, not really knowing any attorneys. So never really thought that's an area of field that, that I would go into simply by just not being exposed to it. Um, And then I took, I majored in business in college and I took a business law elective. And I remember that the textbook was like a very thick, it was a law school textbook and everyone hated it, but I enjoyed it. And I remember just thinking, this is so weird. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school and be a business lawyer. So I just had these kind of random exposures to the law and thought, okay, maybe I'll try this. And so I got to law school that way. I mean, I had friends who helped me along the way, helped me study for the LSAT, all those things. When I got to law school, and so coming out, being, you know, essentially first-generation college graduate, you know, basically, there are only a, a couple that had gone to college outside of me before this point. You know, you come into law school and everyone's like, oh, my my mom is a lawyer. My dad's worked at this firm forever. My, my grandfather's been a prosecutor for 20 years. And all these students know what they're going to do because they've been exposed to it. And I came in just sort of like, I'm just trying to get through it. I'm just, just trying to get through it. And I gravitated towards what I knew, which was business. So I tried to do transactional type classes, like how could, and I just want to do business stuff, contracts, all those things. And part of that was exposure, but part of that was that it felt safe because it was familiar. And criminal law felt scary because I wasn't exposed to it. It just felt big and scary. I'm just being honest. And so um, 
graduated from law school in 2011. And if you remember, you know, the economy sort of tanked in 2008, right? And people were saying, well, by 2011, it'll be recovered and you'll be fine. Well, it wasn't recovered and we were not fine. So um, I just remember through my law school journey, I had met a couple of prosecutors and one of them encouraged me to apply to work at the DA's office. And I was like, I don't know how to do a trial. I don't know how to do any of that. I didn't take any of the classes that would have prepared me for that. In fact, I avoided the classes that would have prepared me for that out of fear, if we're being honest. And so I eventually though applied, got into the DA's office, worked there for six and a half years, and then you know, finally getting to your actual question. So then I'm in the DA's office and people would say things like, you should really um, be a judge one day. And I remember thinking that's so much responsibility. And that and it's so much um, work. And I, I had a really, I think, good idea of how much responsibility, how much work it would be. And I just didn't think that I was going to be able to do it. And frankly, I did all those things that we typically do sometimes, especially as women and women of color in fields where we're not very much represented, which is talk myself out of it. I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. I was doing this to myself, right? All internal. No, I should wait longer. And I had a conversation with... Um, um, another judge who's become a mentor of mine. And she said, you know, women historically have to be asked to go for higher positions. And women tend to do the thing where we say, well, we want more experience. We want to be prepared, like fully prepared. And, and men don't have that qualm, right? Men will just go for whatever they want to go for and feel entitled to it. You know, I'm, I'm generalizing, but, um, and she said that those words to me. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. In my mind, still thinking, I don't know, I'm, I, maybe I'm too young for this. So if you know about how judges get on the bench in Milwaukee, you can be appointed, you can, and eventually you have to be elected. But what happened in my case is that there was a judge who retired in the middle of his term. And so we have six year terms. So he retired, which means the governor could appoint someone to fill that vacancy, but then you're required to run in the very next election. And those are every April. So it was September 2019 was the was when I actually got appointed, but this was all happening in the summer that I was applying. And so I applied and I thought, okay, it's just an application, which was like 15 pages, by the way. <laughs> but I thought, it's just an application. And then I thought, okay, it's just an interview with the governor's committee. And then it's just a second interview with the governor. And then I, I've told the story. I got to the my second interview, so naive, right? Like just naive to the whole process. And at the end of the interview, he said, what would you say if I offered you the position? And I just thought he was asking me to make sure that I was serious about it and that I wasn't someone who just, you know what I'm saying? Just tried to see how far I could get. And so I just was, of course I would accept. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to pack up my stuff and I'm sure he'll let me know, you know, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and then he said, I'm appointing you right now. There's some, some words to that effect. And I lost all my composure. And I was like, what? Like all my uh, professional. I want to start right there. So yeah. You brought up a whole bunch of good points. One being that as black women and women of color, we always literally have imposter syndrome. And that's what I heard like a lot through there. So how did you fight through that? Was it the people around you? Was it just you knowing that you deserve it? But like every step you were like, I'm scared, I had fear, but yet you still kept going. Like, why did you keep going? Because I think big things and um, I don't like being comfortable, right? I feel like I, I it's it's positive to challenge ourselves. And I think if it's scary, and big, maybe that's a positive thing. So my mindset was do it scared. Okay, so I'm scared, but just do it scared and you'll be fine. 
And if it's going to happen, I am a very firm believer. And if it's if it's for me, then it's going to happen. It's not for if it's not for me, it's not going to happen. It'll happen in the timing it's supposed to happen. And so I think I I felt one is I did have support. I had I had mentors. I had people who were already on the bench who were encouraging me, saying like, "You can do this. You would be a great addition to the bench." And then I think I just thought, you know, why not go for this? So I'm scared, but I'm I'm going to do what's scared, and then we'll just see what happens. So <laughs> it just happened to work out. And so when did you get appointed or elected um, to Branch 16? So, um, so that second interview with the governor, that was, that was believed the first week of September, 2019. So I got appointed at the end of the interview. He said I was appointed and I just, you know, um, had to let that process for some days because I wasn't expecting to find out so soon. Um, so I got appointed in September, 2019, and then I had to run in the April, 2020 election. So right before COVID, right? I about so, I, so during the pandemic, like. Right. But I got a good solid, like six, well, I had a from September, end of September to March, I got to be on the bench um, before COVID shut everything down, which was really nice to be in person, be with everyone before that, because the people that got elected during COVID had a whole different experience. So I'm I'm grateful that I was able to um, get on the bench before everything shut down. So ran in April, 2020 on that ballot, and then I was elected. Um, so then to a six-year term. So my first term will end April, 2026. Got you. So since you've been elected, you know, pandemic and all that stuff, like what type of cases have like you've been involved in and like what kind of impact do you want to have as a judge, especially in Milwaukee? Sure. So my first assignment, I've had two assignments. Well, I'm in my second assignment right now, but um, my first assignment was at Children's Court. So, you know, we have our adult court downtown and then Children's Court is in Wauwatosa. And, you know, we treat and we should treat children differently because their cases are different and we want to protect them in, in some ways. So it's it's in a separate location, although it's not entirely convenient for the community that we serve, but that, you know, I didn't make that decision. So um, <laughs> I spent my first two years at children's court and then I, I presided over CHIPS cases. So those are, that acronym is Child in Need of Protection or Services. So those are families that are involved with CPS in some way. So CHIPS cases and delinquency cases, so kids accused of committing crimes, and then also mixed in there any other proceeding involving kids for the most part. So guardianship proceedings involving kids, injunctions involved, uh, restraining orders, injunctions involving kids, those kinds of cases. And one of the one of the reasons why I saw it important to, to try to get on the bench, so for context, there are 47 circuit court judges in Milwaukee County, there are 47 of us. Right now there are three black women out of 47. There will be four. There's a fourth coming on the bench. She just was appointed yesterday. Um, but, you know, for context, you know, you know, Bella Phillips was the first uh, black judge on the bench years and years ago. Between her and the next judge, which was Maxine White, is like a couple decades. Between Maxine White and the next black judge was Danielle Shelton, which was almost a couple decades. And Danielle Shelton got appointed, um, uh, elect elected, excuse me, right before I did. So we came on the bench in this, in this, within the same few months. And so um, it's representation, right? It's little, it's, it's, it's black kids, girls and boys coming into courtrooms and not seeing someone who looks like them in a, in a position of authority. And interestingly, I would, you know, black girls would come into my courtroom. And so I look younger than I am too. So I think that's, that's part of it. They think, oh, look at this like young person. <laughs> so I look young. And I'm a black woman. And so little black girls would come in and they would smile like immediately. 
having no idea what I was going to say, if I was going to give them what they want, but it was just seeing someone who looks like them. And I think what that does for people is it makes them feel like that person might understand me. And they could be wrong, right? The perception could be wrong, but it's important because it makes people feel comfortable. And I would often ask a question of my colleagues when I worked in the DA's office, I would say, how would you feel if you walked into a courtroom and every single person was black? The judge, your attorney, all the jurors, how would you feel? And, and nobody would want to answer that question because the answer is you would feel like it might be unfair. You don't want to say it out loud, but that's how you would feel. You feel uncomfortable. And I said, so how do you think it feels for people who are black and brown to come into courtrooms and not see anyone in power who looks like them? That might change how they how they open up. That might change you know, their attitude. You know, your mindset of someone's not going to understand me, you might shut down. So I said, it's so important for these kids to see people who look like them one, to know, oh, I can do that too one day. And two, to feel some sense of comfort, some relief, like, okay, she might get me. And to me, that that is important. So I, that that's part of what I want to leave as part of my legacy, that I want people to feel like they were understood, they were heard. I want them to understand, especially for kids, you can do this type of work. Um, and so that was my first assignment, which I really love, but I've learned two things about myself. I'm an empath and I'm an introvert. And so I found working with kids who are so important, right? If we can intervene and do positive things for kids, we can we can interrupt the pipeline that we see from juvenile court to adult court, right? But it's also very emotionally taxing because the more you learn, the more you understand, I, I can't solve all the problems, right? I can talk to you in court. I can try to encourage you, try to connect with you, but I can't solve all of the things that you need. Um, that was my first two years. The last two years I've been doing, um, I've been downtown in adult court presiding over felony drug cases. Mm. So, right. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Right, right. <laughs> and that's a lot too. Let me tell you what I was not prepared for, honestly, was seeing um, so many grown Black men cry in my courtroom. I was not emotionally prepared for that. Just at the fear of what might happen, what I might do for their sentence. I just or talking about their trauma, not prepared for that. But most cases I see right now are drug possession, drug distribution, all at the felony level. So I'm when you say like drug, do you mean like mostly marijuana or is it like other stuff? Mar marijuana, but um, a lot of cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, some fentanyl. And fentanyl I'm seeing mostly because most people don't know they have fentanyl. Most people think they have cocaine or they have heroin. But then when it's tested by Wisconsin's crime lab, they'll find fentanyl in it, which means they're probably buying something not knowing it's laced with fentanyl. And we know that fentanyl is causing a lot of our overdoses. It, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I want to get into like mental health in a little bit, but I want to yeah. go back. You brought up um, Velar Phillips. So you used to work there, correct? What was your, you spent like two years there? Oh, so as a prosecutor, as yeah, as a prosecutor, I worked downtown at first in the domestic violence unit. And then I went out to our children's court, which is our Bell R. Phillips Juvenile Justice Center. That's the name of it. Or actually, I think it's called the Youth and Family Justice Center now. They've changed the name a couple of times. Oh, they changed it from Bell R. Phillips? Well, it's still Bell R. Phillips, but I think it's it's called Bell R. Phillips. Oh, yeah, Youth, Youth and Family Justice Center. Okay. Yeah. I used um, to um I used to actually I taught a class there um virtually uh to the to the young boys. Um, that were actually in like the the cell, and I remember talking about this on the first episode of the podcast, and it was just 
it was de definitely interesting. And I actually have a meeting with them today, and they um they're interested in bringing us in in person. But like oh, you wow. said, it was it was a lot of mental because like I felt bad because as soon as I logged off, I could be outside, but they're still in there, and I didn't know it looked like a jail. I mean, duh, but I didn't know that. Like I'm, I don't know. Well, I mean, and so I've taken a tour of the, of the, it's called secure detention where they keep them placed. There are portions that look like there are classrooms. There are other areas that look like, I mean, it, it, it resembles an adult prison. Like adult prisons have that. They have cells, they have general areas and they have classrooms. They have, so that's what it looks like. Um, and it is, that's why I think it's so important for us to try to do right by kids. Like we need to interrupt the pipeline so they're not going into the adult world, which is a so different, right? In juvenile court, um, in court, you'll have that youth, their attorney, you might have service providers like wraparound, running rebels, you know, all kinds of, you know, therapists, all kinds of support people that are in court, which is great. But then in adult court, it's just that per it's just that person and their attorney. There aren't the support people there. Well, I it's, it's a bit different. I, I know they're adults, but do you think we would have more of an impact if we allow more of that what we do for the youth and so the adult or do you think we should never cross those type of lines like should it just stay how it is or what are your thoughts on that i mean personally i feel that you know we've defined an adult by an age which is so arbitrary right because you there's first of all brain development doesn't even match up with that you know our brains are still developing into our 20s so it, it doesn't match up for that reason and also everyone matures at their own age. I mean, I see people in my courtroom that are that are 20 or 21. And in my head, I'm like, this is a kid based on how they talk or how they're acting or their maturity, but you're a kid, you know, in your mind. So I do feel like that would benefit. First of all, at, at any age, people need those kinds of supports. And oftentimes these adults I'm talking to on my court didn't get the support they needed when they were younger. That's why they're having struggles now. They had mental health diagnoses when they were younger. They had, you know, learning disabilities when they were younger addiction issue you know all those things so I do think more support is always going to help whatever can sustain that person outside of the system would help so I I mean to your to your question yes I do think it'd be beneficial to carry that support in, into an older age it, there shouldn't it shouldn't be cut off at age 17 is my point um going to bring a mental health now so you discussed like you weren't prepared for black men to be crying in court and that shocked me, like thinking about it, because for one, just as a black woman and just as black women are portrayed, black men are portrayed as very strong. They like they don't go through nothing, they don't shed a tear. So <laughs> when you are in court and you're dealing with these type of things and maybe sometimes you do have to sentence someone or however that works, like how are you dealing with this on a personal side? Because for one, are you fearful ever? Because um, I have saw stuff like, you know, them crazy little stories, like, you know, TV, have you ever fearful of stuff? And then, too, like, how do you deal with, like, just the things that you experience in, in the courtroom? How do you deal with that mentally? Right. So to your first question, um, yes and no. I mean, I don't feel on a daily basis unsafe, but I, I'm also very aware of the fact that part of my job is sometimes sending people to prison or jail or putting them on probation. And people are upset about that. You know, defendants get upset about it. The individual person gets upset, their family gets upset. People get upset about the, the rules that are in my courtroom. You know, for example, I have rules, you know, um, no food, no beverages, no children. And I always explain to people, 
what we're talking about is not appropriate for kids. I don't want to be a part of a, of this being normalized in any way for children. I don't want them to hear younger children, right? So I don't want them to hear what we're talking about. So that's why I have that rule. And plus kids are loud, sometimes make noise. So it's, and it can be disruptive, but that's the main reason that this is not kid appropriate. I don't want to make it normal for them. And people will get upset about that. So you never know who's upset about what you've done as a judge or as a prosecutor for that matter. But I, I feel like the work is so important. I would never let the fear keep me from doing it, but I don't feel scared on a daily basis. But you're you're right, you know, judicial security is really important. Most, a lot of judges that have been attacked have been attacked at their homes because people have found out where they lived, things like that. So that is something to be mindful of always. Um, and I, of course, I'm just, cautious uh, to the best of my ability. And then to your second question, um, the mental health piece that is that is so important. So so first of all, I I do my best to normalize mental health as it's just health. You know, if you if you you know cut your leg and you were bleeding out, would you would you wait and not go to the doctor or would you go immediately? You know, we address our physical health immediately, but then have this idea about our mental health not being as important. So so I made a joke. I was talking to some black law students at Marquette Law School a couple months ago, and um, I was sharing with them the importance of taking care of your mental health, because I can't be a good judge if I'm not mentally OK, if I'm stressed, if if I'm anxious, whatever I'm going through, if I'm not at my best, I won't make good decisions. And that's unfair to anybody who's in my courtroom. Right. So I said, at this point, if you're not in therapy, I'm judging you. <laughs> but it was a joke. But I was just trying to normalize, like, you know, I, I'm in therapy. I know many people that are, and I use that as my, yes, I use that as, that is my self-care. So there are self-care things I need. I need to exercise on a regular basis. I need to go to therapy. I need to get my nails done. There are things that I know, you know, are good for my self-care and I have to build those things in. And then I also think just allowing myself time to feel the feelings, right? So it, the empath in me, when someone when I'm sentencing somebody and they're talking about their story and I'm absorbing all of that, it's like, I, I feel what they're saying times 10. I'm feeling all of that sadness, all of that trauma. And I have to let myself process that, make a decision and kind of let myself recover from that. So it's just recognizing it. I think um, recharging, I think therapy works wonders, honestly, just having someone else to talk to, to process with. Um, those are things I do, but it doesn't, I don't know that I found the, the right balance, to be perfectly honest, just because it's a lot. It is a lot to hear someone's story, have to sentence them, um, and then have to kind of move on and go to the next person. So it just the self-care is huge. Um, Has there ever been a situation where if it was any other judge, that person would have been sentenced, but you'd be like, you, because you're who you are, a Black woman, whatever, you like, kind of see something different. So maybe I'll give them community service or whatever, but has there ever been like a moment like that? I mean, it. Um, we're all different, right, as judges. And there are some people who maybe won't approach a case the same way that I do. And I can appreciate that. So, so might someone make a different decision? I'd say absolutely. But, but what I try to do is, and I say this to people when I sentence them, I talk about my investment in them, right? So I'm invested in our community being safer. And that person is a part of our community. So I want them to be safe as much as the next person. I want us all to be safe. You only get to community safety when you have individual people who decide to make safer, smarter decisions. I say that constantly. And so um, 
I will do a lot of community service. I like using that usually with probation because I feel like when you do things that in any way cause harm to our communities, and I should mention with the drug cases, I see a lot of fleeing cases. So those stories you hear about people driving 100 miles per hour the wrong way down some city streets, I see a lot of those cases too. And I talk a lot about that. And so I say, whenever you do things that cause any kind of harm, any harm or risk of harm to our community, you need to put something positive in. And so I do order a lot of community service. I utilize probation when I think it's appropriate. Um, if I think someone needs a combination of probation because they have really high treatment needs, but they need sort of a, I don't say punishment, I say accountability. In my mind, accountability is more than punishment. They might get a little bit of confinement time too. They might get jail time. They might get prison time, but I always try to wrap in like, how, how can I rehabilitate, help rehabilitate this person? How, how can I give them the support that they need by way of my orders? So they don't return. And I think aside from the services, I utilize just talking to them. How can I connect with this person and get them to see that what they're doing is destructive to themselves and the community? When you when you bring up those conversations, um, do you get a lot of fight back or do you or do you usually get people that just really are wanting to tell their story of like why they did what they did, or is it just pretty much a mix of both? It's a mix of both. There are a lot of people who do want to talk about, you know, how they got to where they were, you know, why they started doing certain things. Some of them, I think, are afraid to admit, you know, they, they've already pled guilty. They're being sentenced. Some of them get nervous. It's a courtroom and it and it can feel scary. So I just tell, you know, it's okay. If you don't want to say anything, it's fine. But if you want to tell me something, go ahead and tell me something. But I think people, I've, I've seen, I felt connection to some people when we've talked, like, for example, there was a guy sentenced recently. He was talking about the fact that he had been in and out of jail for a lot of his younger years and his adult life and still pretty young in his thirties. And he had recently connected with his, with his daughter and they were building a relationship. And I said, do you think it's worth it to keep missing milestones with your child? Right. Every time you do something like this, you are risking your own personal freedom, which means, you know, and the people that came to court to support him, I said, all the people that came to support you today, that means you miss out on time with them. That means you miss milestones. Is that worth it to you? I don't think it's worth it, but I need you to know that it's not worth it. And I, and I felt like he understood that and he agreed. You just never know how long that will stick. But I feel that if I can get someone to see my point, like, is this worth it? You know, you're talking about your kid and your family and your goals and you have all this potential. Is it worth it to risk that? It's just not. So I think people are, some are receptive. Some aren't ready to receive it. Um, it's a mix. Um, as a community, how can we better support justice-impacted people, whether they're in the system or when they get out the system? But I feel like we just do a shitty job overall. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what can we do? Um, I know it's a big question. It's a lot it of is things a, we can do. <laughs> I know it is a big question, and I because I think the there's never any one solution, right? There's a there's a, such a resource issue. So some people, by the time they get to me, get to sentencing, it's it's interesting, you know, a case might be pending for a while, like a couple of years for whatever reason. And then in that time, this person's like, yeah, I went in, I got my GED and I applied and I got this LLC and I'm doing this. And it's like, why couldn't you do these things before? You know, you have these thoughts like, well, why couldn't you do that before? And what was it? And they show up and they have this, you know, this huge support system, their family, their friends have all come to court for their sentencing and they're all doing positive things. And it leaves me kind of dumbfounded. Like you have this huge support system. Why, why couldn't you do these things before? So I go back to, I think 
the the beginning is getting people when they're when they're kids. <laughs> That's what I think. I feel like if we got kids the right resources, mental health resources, um, if we got them, you know, and I think too, there's a stigma right in the black community about mental health, right? No one, no one don't go to therapy you know, unless you're crazy, which is just, that's a generational cultural stigma that we need to get rid of. Um, but there are kids who have, you know, who, who have traumatic childhoods who are getting no support. Um, kids who have learning disabilities who are embarrassed to admit that. So they stop paying attention in class and they stop going to school. They start skipping school. We have all those kinds of things. So I think it starts with kids, but maybe for adults to get back to your, your question, um, goodness, more education. Um, there's a stigma about having, you know, convictions, having felony convictions. Our, our uh, court system, you know, it's public, you can CCAP anyone that's public. Even if you're acquitted, the case stays on CCAP for two years. And so that person will face either direct or indirect discrimination for jobs, for housing. I don't know how we combat all those things. Um, unless we're just educating people. So I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest, in a, in a bigger way. Um, more community supports, you know, people need to under, need to know, you know, how do I, things like, um, what kind of jobs can I get despite the fact that I have a felony conviction? Um, you know, how can I, and a lot of this is, I see a lot of adults who um, don't have their high school degree. And I think that that, can be a hindrance also when they have these goals of why well, I want to start this business, I want to do X, Y, or Z. I think it's education and resources. People need jobs. They need to know how to do things, how to, they want to start a business. They just need those resources and we have to be able to, um, to help them and not throw them away, right? They're, they're going to go maybe away for a little bit, depending on what they've done. They're going to come back. So we need more investment in our own community. Yes. Funding, resources, and people to actually care. Um, right. You brought up resources. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but it's a software company called The Way Out, um, Ruben and Eli. So they're both justice impacted individuals, um, Latino. And one of them spent, I think, like seven years in prison. And then the other one, I don't know, they both were in there a long time, but they got out and they created this platform where they help justice impacted people get jobs and like career jobs. And then so they're a platform for people like, quad uh, graphics they're trying to hire and just mm -hmm. impact the people they'll go into this program like hey this is what we're looking for and then they'll and just impact the people will come in and apply so like more resources like that but it's like it's only so much like one resource can do like how do we multiply this and then on top of that how do we stop it from even ne we needing this service in the first place because right. i see like milwaukee most people that are going to jail are black and so like what do we need to do to, in order to stop that for one i'm gonna get a little political we definitely need to uh, legalize marijuana in the state of Wisconsin, a lot of cases are because of weed, but then you can go 90 minutes to Illinois. And <laughs> right, we're bordered by states where it's, where it's legalized. That's, that's difficult for people to grasp, and it's hard. Because it, it doesn't make sense, because we've been taught all these years how bad this one thing is, and all these people are in jail and are still in jail, but now there are people who are making money off the same things that, you know, make yeah, you know, we we ain't get into a lot of that, but we we I'll, I'll go to the next uh topic. Um, outside of outside of being a judge, what do you like to do for fun? Oh my goodness! So one thing my therapist and I talk about <laughs> are my 
uh, she calls in my boundary issues because I have a hard time saying no to things. So I, I'm on a lot of boards and committees for things I feel passionate about, like with the law school, I'm on um, the law alumni board. And then I joined the Meta House board last year, which provides wonderful resources to women who suffer from addiction issues, even supporting them with their kids living with them. Um, so I'm involved in a lot of boards and committees outside of work, and some are connected to work, some are outside of work. Um, and then um, I like to eat despite my small size. I think in a past life, I probably was overweight because I really like to eat. So I love to eat. I love to travel when I can. Um, I'm a huge Marvel nerd. Do you like Marvel movies? Yes. I like um, Dr. Strange is my favorite. Yeah. Is it? Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've seen them all. I've seen every single movie a couple times. <laughs> so I love going to the movies. So um, yoga, exercise, things like that. So, um, and now that it's nicer outside, just getting outside, just being outside. I'm not outdoorsy. So I don't do like I am. camping. I like hiking. Um, I like I like a lot of that little stuff. I can maybe like I'm I have a fear of bugs and and like bears and, and the thing is you ask my family I'm terrified of bugs I hate bugs so for me to still like hiking is really really weird but I still freak I will call my granny be like it's a spider it's, and I will yeah. like start crying like I don't I don't play that I don't like it Same. I did that recently my mom was like I need you to calm down <laughs> so. my granny was like when are you ever gonna grow outgrow this never like right I'm not you're not trust me I'm in my well into my 30s and I still haven't so um. So yeah, those are the kind of things I like to do that just try to build that balance between um, my job. I also watch a lot of uh, reality TV, which somebody was asking me, they're like, how do you, like, how does that go? To I said, listen, my job is, it's so serious, right? And my mind all day is focused on mostly very serious things. I need a balance. So for me, that balance is watching Real Housewives because they don't have real problems and that is like, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to think through anything difficult. And that is the balance. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of real housewives. Um, so yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with that. It's cool. We all, we all got our thing. <laughs> um, well, how I end all my interviews with well, most of them, when people listen to this podcast, what do you want them to get from it? I want people to know, um, first of all, that there are judges on the bench who care. You know, what I hear from people when I talk to them in the community are things like, they're worried that people that come in the system aren't getting consequences. They're worried about their safety. They're worried about um, over-incarceration of people of color, like you mentioned before. And I want them to know that there are people on the bench who care. There are a lot of judges who care. I'm one of them. I want to make things better for people. I want people to come into court and feel like it, it was fair, that they were heard. I want young children to understand that their path can be whatever they want it to be if they want to come be a lawyer, be a judge. I want little, you know, black kids to understand that they can do these these things. I also want people to know. I see this a, a lot, where you know, people, especially in, in the the current assignment that I'm in, they come out of you know selling drugs or whatever, and they go into a trade. And then I had some guys say, "I didn't know that I could be good at something." So you know, we you know historically sort of push one avenue, go to school, go to college. The trades are first of all. Um, really lucrative careers. And I just want kids to know that they have options and I want them to feel that the legal system has so many flaws, right? Um, it was not built for us. It was not created for us, but there are people working in the system that do care, that want to make our community safer. And I'm one of those people. So I, I want people to take that away from part of our conversation. 
and I'm sure they got it. This was a lovely last episode. Y'all listen to Carbon Stone Podcast. Um, this is the last episode of season one. We ended it very well. Um, just because the podcast is ending doesn't mean our positive news is. We have articles coming out weekly. We have video interviews. Um, make sure to check us out at carbonstone.com and follow us at carbonstone on all social media. And remember, in the end, everything will be carbonstone. In the end, everything will be carbonstone. <laughs>